Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Last Sunday, Father Ben described the turn in the road that we are at in our liturgical calendar, entering not into a new season exactly, but rather into the time between seasons, the time when we mark time by counting, often referred to as ordinary time, not because it's not special, but referring to that counting with ordinal numbers, first, second, third, etc., which themselves are named because of the good order that they come in. So it's an ordered time, a time well-structured and put together so that growth and progress can occur in our lives, guided by the Holy Spirit, for the repentance of our sins, our growth in virtue, and our mission to spread the gospel into the world. That's why the liturgical color for the season is green, for growth and life. But as you can see, we aren't decked in green today, but we have yet another day adorned with the heavenly color white. After all of Eastertide finally concluded with Pentecost and its fiery red, we return to white to celebrate the revelation of the Trinity. And today we hold on one more time with white to celebrate yet another heavenly mystery, but one appropriate for the final transition to the earthly green sojourn of ours, the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist. The fact that Corpus Christi, or the body of Christ, is placed here in the calendar, according to our Vicar General Father Ed Hughes, points to something in, nature, in the nature of the sacrament. It's one of the primary ways Christ comes to us during this middle time, while we await his second and glorious coming. Therefore, the Eucharist is the theme of this feast, very near the Ascension and Pentecost, when Christ promises to be with us always and sends the Comforter. That's from Father Ed. So when Christ leaves us in his Ascension, he sends his Spirit to indwell us and guide us and teach us and comfort us. Sure. But he also, through the agency of that same Holy Spirit and with the blessing of the Father, deigns to remain present with us through a mystery that no one would have guessed or invented. Even though he completed, fulfilled, and summed up all the previous sacrifices of the Hebrews in his one complete sacrifice on the cross for our sakes, he allows for us to make our own small sacrifices of ourselves and to participate in and to partake of his singular sacrifice. By showing us how to offer simple bread and wine, which he makes into his own sacrifice. And since his own sacrifice is himself, that's what we offer, and that's what we eat. The crucified body and blood of the Lord, which is now also his resurrected and glorified body and blood. It's clear that saying we eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus is strange and disturbing. It should be anyway, if we think about it. Sometimes we don't think about it enough. But if we do, then we understand why for centuries Christians have been accused by those outside the church of being cannibals. And our gospel passage today is just a snippet of a broader exchange that Jesus is having with many of his followers who, upon hearing this otherwise sane man, who's clearly full of the love and power of God to work wonderful miracles. He's saying wonderful things. He's expounding the scriptures in true ways that they've never heard before but know are true. And he's doing miracles uh, like 
multiply, uh, multiplying bread and fish and feeding a multitude out in the wilderness. And it's these people who are following him from the wilderness. They catch up with him and they ask for more. They ask for another sign. Hey, Moses, remember him? He fed the people in the desert with manna. Think you can do that again? And Jesus is saying to them, you just want normal food again, day after day after day, but you're going to get hungry again day after day. I am here to give you the bread of life, that when you eat it, you have eternal life. Great, give us this bread. Well, I am the bread of life. What are you talking about? Well, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This is a hard saying, Jesus, but he doesn't back down. He doubles down. He tells them, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And on hearing this, tons of people stopped following him. They couldn't handle it anymore. And he turns to the 12 and he says, you know, what about you guys? Are you going to ditch me too? And they say, essentially, you're incredibly trustworthy in every other way. You know, we have nowhere else to go and no one else to follow. This is, as the Jews said in John chapter 6, a hard saying of the Lord. So what do we actually believe about the Eucharist? In short, we today believe what the church has always believed, that though we see and taste bread and wine in the Eucharist, we are eating and drinking the presence of Christ in his incarnated and divine reality, body, soul, and divinity. Of course, in our dogma about the incarnation of God, we confess that God became fully man with 100% of our human nature, uh, which according to our traditional language includes a body and a soul, right? Such that we believe the body of Christ hung on a cross dead and the soul of Christ descended into Hades to unlock it or to kick down the doors. But in all of that, he also remained 100% God meaning that his unharmable, impassable divine nature never suffered crucifixion or death. And yet both human and divine nature are there together in one person on the cross. So they are joined, but they're not mixed up or confused. They're distinct, but they're not separate. And what we believe about the natures, human and divine, of Jesus in his incarnation, we believe about his presence in the Eucharist too, except under the veils of bread and wine. So in the Eucharist, we eat and drink the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ. I doubt many of us are disturbed to be consuming Jesus' divinity in the Eucharist, uh, though if we truly understood what that meant, we probably ought to be disturbed in the sense of sort of the, the fear of God and Isaiah's um, uh, terror in the temple when he's called and sees the presence of God. But at a visceral level, you know, thinking about consuming the human nature, the body and blood of Jesus, may be for us a bit more disturbing. But what does that even mean? Why? Like, why? Why is this a thing? Why are we supposed to be eating him? Well, this has to do with the nature of sacrifice. Sacrifices in the ancient world, after having been slaughtered and offered up in fire, were then eaten by the priests and the people who brought it. In the logic of Hebrew sacrifices to God in the Old Testament, God received his portion of the sacrifice as it was lifted up to him, as its you know, scent in life was carried up in the rising smoke. But as the people were also fed by this sacrifice, this innocent life, which stood in their place, since their own lives were 
being lived imperfectly and which ultimately belong to God anyway, right? So in doing this, in offering an innocent life in their stead and in receiving that innocent life into their bodies by eating it, they received a respite, another chance, uh, a, a, you know, thanks to this substitution of an innocent life. And when they ate that sacrifice, the innocency of it was entering into them. Of course, the innocent lives of bulls and sheep are poor substitutes, and they require repetitions over and over again. It was a system only really designed as a stopgap measure and mostly to just train the people offering those sacrifices to humble themselves to God and to first fear him and then love him. Thus the psalm of David in God saying, you know, I don't desire the sacrifice of bulls and goats and sheep. What I desire is your sincerely broken and contrite hearts being offered to me. That's what I desire. But you aren't capable of truly offering them. You need, you need to attach that humility. You need to understand uh, what's lacking in your relationship with me viscerally by having to slaughter an innocent life, to, to hear its last gasp of breath, to see its blood spilled on the ground. That's what you need. Your hearts need that aid. You need to be helped along so that when you offer your sincere sacrifice to me, it's really your broken heart. So all those animal sacrifices, that was the logic of the system anyway. And that was its purpose, was to train people to offer themselves. So when Jesus, the only human to perfectly love God and live innocently, redeemed our poor nature by becoming our nature, even to the point of death at our hands, he became for us the ultimate and final sacrifice. He wrapped up all those sacrifices. He instantiated the purpose of them all. He was what they were all pointing to and leading up to. And of course, God the Father received this humble work of his own son. Just like God didn't want to see the sacrifices of bulls and goats, God didn't want to see the sacrifice of his son. God is not looking on his son and saying, ah, oh, yes, someone deserved to die for all this you know, sin, and I'm, I'm glad that you know, someone finally did. Now, now I feel better about it something. That's, that's not the logic. That's not how it works. Some Christians have, have thought that way over time, and that's not what we Orthodox believe. What we Orthodox believe is that the Father never wanted to see his Son on the cross. The Son didn't want to ascend it, but did out of love so that he could identify with all of our pain, with our death. His sacrifice was self-sacrifice. It's the same thing we see in you know, our favorite books and movies and stories. When the hero is willing to lay down his or her life to save those who need saving. That's what the story is. It's a story of self-sacrifice. Not to the Father, but on our behalf, because we needed it. We were enslaved not to God, but to death. And Jesus defeats, not God, but death. And so the Father sees what his Son has done and looks on it in beautiful loving recognition of the sacrifice that it is. And he loves his son even more <laughs> because of the son's willingness to do this for us. So how do we put that innocent life of that sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice and his innocency into us unless we eat it? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. These are Jesus' own words. It's the redeemed and perfected humanity, the human nature that we partake of. That's what body and blood means. That's humanity, right? And it's his innocent humanity. It's his perfected humanity, as well as his divinity, all joined. We are eating perfect human nature joined with divine nature in the Eucharist. Graciously, of course, given to us under the veils of bread and wine so that it's congenial and pleasant for us. Because how else are we supposed to do this? This is, this is the beautiful design of God. He becomes the sacrifice that wraps up all the other sacrifices, and yet he still provides a way for us to eat it. Not just spiritually, because his sacrifice is real. It's incarnate. He hangs on a cross in his body and his blood. So we don't just participate or benefit from that sacrifice spiritually. We have to benefit also from it physically as well. We have to partake of it in our body and blood. That's why it's a meal. That's why it's food. It's the most natural thing that we can do. We obviously need to eat to survive and sustain this, this life that's still going to expire at some point, right? But what better way to put true life that sustains our eternal being in us than by eating? It's just the most... This is why all that language in the sequence hymn that we just heard is, is there. It's, it's almost... It's poetic, it's saying something and then unsaying it, because how can we say that we're eating the body and blood of Christ? Well, we are, but we're, we're also, it's bread and wine. That's the form that it's taking, and it's, it's glorious, but we don't even have the words for the glory. This is the mystery that we celebrate today. This is why, even though it was instituted on Maundy Thursday, it is now the meal that sustains us, and we, we celebrate this as we transition from Eastertide and the ascension and the descent of the Holy Spirit to our time of counting and growing because this is how we grow. Sunday by Sunday, if, if we were able to day by day, but at least, at least Sunday by Sunday, we come here and we grow bit by bit. We offer what we can of ourselves, our contrite hearts. We learn to do that still and we partake of the one sacrifice that replaced all others, and we grow. We grow in our hearts. And it's for this reason that we celebrate not just the reality of who is in the Eucharist, but the institution of the Eucharist itself. We're taking a day to pause and thank God for this sacrament. Obviously, in you know receiving the sacrament, we aren't thinking of it, usually. We're thinking of Christ, and that's, that's right. But one, one feast day of the year to take the time to thank and praise God for the reality, for the mode that he meets us in, for instituting this mystery for us so that we can eat his presence. I think it's very fitting. So that's what we celebrate today. This is the mystery in the sacrament of the Eucharist. And after Mass is concluded today, instead of the final blessing and benediction given by Father Ben, we are going to let Christ be the one directly to bless us and give us our benediction. After we um, take Christ in his sacramental form in procession out into the world, just a short procession around the church, we will come back, we will kneel and adore Christ in his sacrament and be blessed. 
And that's how we end today on this feast day of the body of Christ, Corpus Christi. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.